electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Live from the NASDAQ market site in the heart of New York City's Times Square, this is Fast Money. Here's what's on tap tonight. Off to the races, stocks rallying in a big way after a tamer-than-expected inflation report. But is this really the all-clear investors have been waiting for? Or is this pre-Santa Claus rally going to run out of steam? And the countdown is on to the Biden-Chi meeting. What is at stake when the leaders of the world's two biggest economies meet face-to-face? And what might come out of this summit? Plus, the mega melt-up in shares of Meta. Home Depot builds up big gains and uh, Michael Burry's latest big bet. The stories behind these movers all coming up. I'm Melissa Lee coming to you live from Studio B at the NASDAQ on the desk tonight. Tim Seymour, Karen Feiderman, Julie Beal, and Chris Verone of Strategus, a Baird company. And we have to start off with that major rally on Wall Street. The S&P and NASDAQ both posting their best days since April. The tech-heavy index closing at its highest since early August. The S&P jumping nearly 2%. The Dow up 490 points. And the big standout, the small-cap Russell 2000, which had its best day of the year, up more than 5%. The moves coming after a tamer-than-expected inflation report further reassured investors that the Fed is done raising rates. The benchmark 10-year Treasury note yield tumbling below 4.5%. It was above five just three weeks ago. And take a look at some sector standouts. Regional banks soaring 7%, flirting with the 200-day moving average for the first time since February. The builders less than 5% from an all-time high. So is today's CPI print, the green light for the markets. i got to go to Chris first on this one. What's changed here? It feels like everything yeah. has changed, has it? Well, it's the big question. Was today a game change for the market after what was a pretty squishy year, right? For most of the year, we were all talking about how narrow it was, how underwhelming the trends were. Does a 15 to 1 internal day today, we were 15 to 1 advancers versus decliners. Best day we've seen effectively since last year's low, actually really going back to the March 2020 low. Does that flip the script here? I think the big test over the next couple of weeks is what does consumer discretionary do? If you look at the soft landings historically, 1994, 95, 19. 84, 85, 67, 68, the one thing they all have in common is discretionary roared coming out of them. I like what we saw today. I think there's more work to do there. I think the other big question on small versus large, if you look at the IWM versus triple Q pair, that could rally another 15% before it even gets back to resistance. So there's still some some daylight in front of us here uh, on those moves. Yeah, I, th- I think we blew a lot of those downtrends to shreds. I, I think you have, whether it's even the S&P, because between 4,350 and 4,400, people are like, ah, we still are still kind of in that downtrend from, from August 1. Uh, the Russell, to me, still has plenty of room to run. Uh, you know, the, the KR, we, I mean, and it was a big, big run in regional banks. And, and look, even if we have a slowing consumer and credit issues, I don't think that changed day over day. I think we have issues that are going to be confronted with a slower economy and a consumer that's finally catching up to spent down savings and may possibly even joblessness. But I do think you have a case where banks have room to run. Again, the stress that was on these banks and that, that was certainly coming from interest rates, 
I get, you know, we can dissect CPI all you want. There were some elements of it without getting too wonky that I think were really important. I mean, owner's equivalent rent looks like maybe it's stabilizing. You have some dynamics, I think, uh, on the headline stuff. Energy prices were a big gift. But there's some elements of CPI that structurally look like they could be getting a little bit better. But, but mostly, I, I would also just, I, we're going to have a great and stick around for an international conversation later on in the show. The dollar's weakness sets up a lot of different asset classes, including resources uh, and, and absolutely international. And I think it was an exciting day for that. Do you feel better about the markets overall compared to 24 hours ago? Do I feel better? I mean, yeah. yes, I do feel better than CPI, that we didn't have a really hot number mm-hmm. and that we didn't sort of reignite the Fed is active once again, right? So that seems to be whether or not they're fully done or 25 basis points, I don't think it matters. But I think that they're not going to call success yet, but they're well on the way for having engineered this. Um, and so that is good. Uh, I look at something like a Home Depot and... Um, that was nice. The earnings were fine. They were good. They were better than expected. But that's not why the stock was up this much, right? Anything right. just remotely related to anything real estate, that was great. It seemed, I thought we would have a little more of a rotation, maybe away from some of the, the Magnificent Seven, just because there are so many other things that are really cheap, right? right? The divergence has been so huge. I thought we would have a little more of a rotation than that. Um, but the IWM to me was sort of the, the most impressive thing. Yeah, and that is uh, Julie Beale's sandbox. Uh, the Russell, do you think there's still more daylight ahead, as Chris Marone said? Yeah, I mean, we, if you look at the spreads in valuation, they're still substantial between, you know, small, mid, and large. And I think that's just a reflection that people still are a little worried about higher for longer, right? Yes, we're going to probably be at these levels and not higher, but if it's if it's up there, it's still going to be difficult for these smaller businesses to refinance themselves. So while I'm super excited to see more enthusiasm around small caps, I recommend being very, very cautious and particularly focusing on businesses with really clean balance sheets right now. Let's say you believe that the Santa Claus rally is here or whatever you want to call it, the rally into urine, seasonal rally. Um, are we in this sort of sweet spot? Are we just in a sweet spot right now where the full impact of the pass through and the impact of rates has not hit the consumer yet? We're seeing the, the benefit of inflation coming down, but we haven't seen the really yes. hard impact of, of higher rates. We're, we're coming through a four-quarter annualized 2.9 uh, GDP uh, on the economy with, with 3.7% unemployment, with credit nowhere uh, a problem just yet. By the way, I was the guy yesterday that said, I have to go back to this. I think I said something like, I don't think the CPI could be much of a driver. I actually think <laughs> I think we've had enough juice out of these things. So totally wrong on that. But um, I, yes, and I think that gets back to the banks. And I, I would go and, you know, it's great having a guy like Chris here because we can suddenly look at a Bank of America chart, which challenges the 200 to the upside for the first time back in January. A lot of the banks, which obviously we know what happened in March, it was SVB and how that, that hangover has haunted the banks. I think there's an opportunity here. And we we haven't even talked about the fact that semis closed at an all-time high. Semiconductor sector, the leadership of this market. So you're getting you're getting the the, the broadening of the market. You saw an equal weighted S&P outperform, but you still have the leadership of the big boys, and and, and that's really important. But uh, you know, I don't know. What, what do you do with banks? I think if you're short, you have to cover them, right? When you get moves like you saw today in bank stocks. I think the harder question, Tim, is we saw the curve actually quietly steepen today. That was one thing that actually surprised me. I would actually would have expected a flatter curve today. Um, curve steeper, we know what we historically associate that with. We associate that with end of cycle dynamics, not new cycle dynamics. So I understand why the banks are up on that. But I do think we have to just ask what are the longer term implications of that, particularly on a day. And I was surprised by this. Copper did nothing today. If I was looking for an area, particularly with the dollar down as sharply as it was, I would have expected some response from copper, some uh, some response from crude, of which we didn't get. 
Wait, so does that mean that it, it's sort of a, a false rally, perhaps? Because uh, I, you don't have the confirmation of the, the more cyclical areas? I think the, the message the market gave us internally says, game on, play long, cover your shorts. I think the question for 2024 is, does the steeper curve, does the lack of participation from things like copper and crude, is that a harbinger of something else that's still out there right. to be determined? Right. So the one, the bang thing that we we were talking about this in the elevator, the elevator on the yes. way to studio. This is what B. we do talk about we do. in elevators. Yes. Very, by short, right. very short, very short, brief conversation, yeah. longer than actually this one will be. Which was <laughs> Bank America had a huge outperform today. One because it's had, you know, it's been really an underperformer. The metrics are very cheap relative to the other big banks, but also that big problem we talk about that held to maturity because they have so much exposure to further out the curve. And that's improving, right. you know, in the last few weeks, that's been a big move. That's actually better for lessens that bear case of the held maturity being so bad. So that was a catch up trade. Uh, my exposure to JPM is it, that's where I want to be in the bank space. All right. For more on today's data and the Fed impact, let's turn to Mark Zandi, chief economist at Moody's Analytics. Mark, great to have you with us. You've been in the uh, no recession, soft landing sort of camp for, for some time. How does this change your calculus in terms of what you see the Fed doing, um, whether it be in terms of hikes, more hikes, and or cuts next year? Well, well, Melissa, I think it just confirms that uh, the rate hikes are over. I mean, I don't see any reason why the Fed would view this report any other way than, you know, inflation's coming in and all the trend lines look really good. It was a, just an absolutely positive report. Uh, it, you know, I, I don't think the bar is pretty high for them to actually cut rates. I think they need to be absolutely sure that Inflation is going to get back to their target before they do that, and that Zandi's forecast is correct. So I don't think that happens quickly. That's probably not until mid-next year. And then even after that, I think they cut rates slowly. But, uh, you know, a report like this does just cement, I think, the that path that, that they're headed on. They're, they're, I think they should feel uh, very good about the way things are going. Hey, Markets, Tim, I, I was not joking, but there, there is some sense out there that people saying the Fed has had nothing to do with this, that this is really just you know, working through COVID dynamics. I don't think that's really true. And when the government gives away 25 percent of GDP, you know, reeling in both money supply, but, you know, having some of that stuff runoffs, you, you get the impact we've had. Was there anything today in those numbers, though, in that core that structurally felt different about where we are in CPI that's Fed impacted? Uh, good point. I, I mean, I, I, I think most of the improvement in inflation goes to the fact that the pandemic and the effect of the Russian war on energy and commodity prices, that's now increasingly in the rearview mirror. And, uh, you know, as a result, that's why inflation's come in and why, you know, the Fed hasn't had to raise rates more and why the economy is going to be able to avoid a recession. Having said that, they've had, you know, the rate hikes have had an impact. The job growth is slowing. Wage growth is moderating. And that is having an you know, an imprint on the inflation number. So, you know, I, I, on, the, on the list of reasons why inflation is coming in, I, I wouldn't put the Fed at the top of the list, but, you know, it's it's definitely on on, on, the, on the list uh, uh, for it. And it's helping get the get inflation back in, into the bottle. Uh, it, and without those Fed rate hikes, I don't think we'd be uh, where we are today. Looking at these reports, the reports, though, the, the thing that makes me feel particularly good is you saw new vehicle prices finally roll over. And I think that's the beginning of a, a trend here. We're going to see new vehicle prices come in as we get better production numbers coming in from Germany and Japan. We should see more inventory in, in weaker car prices. And then, of course, the key is the cost of housing services, as you pointed out, Tim, that, that uh, is moving in the right direction. And 
I, I expect that to continue, you know, over the next six, 12 months. So everything feels like it's descript, but I wouldn't give the, I would, again, I wouldn't give the Fed a lot of credit here, but they certainly deserve some credit. So if they only deserve some credit, Mark, that implies that the full impact of the rate hikes have not yet been felt. So how do you think we will see them and, and why do you think that won't tip us into a recession? No, I think we, Melissa, I think we have seen uh, the effects of the rate hikes. Uh, you know, the job growth is slowing, the labor market's easing. Wage growth is moderating. Uh, you know the economy is, you know, abstracting from that third quarter number, which was gangbusters for GDP. It does feel like the economy is kind of throttling back. Unemployment starting to move higher. So I, I do think they, you know, we've seen a lot of the rate, uh, the effects of the rate hikes already. We've got more to come, uh, but I think they'll be they'll be modest and, you know, sufficient to get the economy where it needs to be to get inflation back in the bottle. Mark, it's Karen. Thanks for being on. Let me just play devil's advocate for a minute. We have so many uh, mortgage holders that have, you know, very low rates, and those are starting to age. And they may be, you know, if they're 2000 or 21 vintage, 25, they may start to really see those effects. And you usually shouldn't wait to the very end to roll over. So I think that that does seem to be like a lot of current cash flow that mortgage owner, mortgage you know, borrowers have that they won't have uh, 18 months down the road. Well, I don't know, Karen. I mean, the bulk of the mortgages were made back in 2020, 2021, and those are 30-year or maybe 15-year fixed rate. So it's going to take a long time before you know those homeowners see you know rates adjust. Uh, and the only the only adjustment is if they move, and if they move, they're you know they don't. There's no 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 problem there whatsoever. And here's the other thing. I mean, you look at total household debt, all liabilities, the whole shoot and match, cards and consumer finance, mortgages, home equity, student loans, only 10% of that debt adjusts with a, uh, within one year of a change in market rates. Uh, you know, you're right. I mean, over time, the rate effects will be felt, but that's over a long period of time. And I, I don't think it's going to do a whole lot of damage. Mark, great to have you with us as always. Thank you. Sure Mark thing. Mark Sandy, Moody's. Um, Julie Beal, I'll go back to the question we started the show off, and that is, is this an all clear? Because it sounds, you know, at least according to Mark, that we felt most of the effects of the rate hikes and, you know, the data is coming in better. And you know what? Things are looking pretty good. Do you feel that same way or do you feel like we are in a window, a sort of sweet spot right now before things really hit the proverbial fan? Well, I think it's a question of tell me what you think the job the job market's going to do, and I can tell you how the rest of the economy is going to go. Right? It's everyone who's out there spending, and remember, the economy is seventy seventy percent plus the consumer. Everyone that has a job is happily spending their paychecks. It was been more towards services. We'll see if it goes more towards goods. But the minute people start losing their jobs, it's really, really, that's what really changes all the calculus for all of this. Because it doesn't just change whether or not people can pay for things, it completely changes consumer confidence and business confidence and their willingness to invest. And so as long as things remain positive in the job market, the thing is, it's really hard to architect a soft landing. It's really, really quite challenging. I'm encouraged by this CPI print, especially on the housing side. I think it's actually even softer than is predicted in the CPI. If you look at you know, the Zillow rent index, it's actually much softer than what's in CPI. But uh, it's a little early to call all clear. Yeah, Karen, you're asking about the idea that people would have to refinance um, or do some yes. their mortgages that right. come due. And so what, is that a concern of yours? That for the consumer down yeah. the road? I, it is a little bit. Um, I mean, I sort of, I imagine you know, people have time to get ready for that, but maybe they don't. Maybe they just wait till the very, very end. I guess, you know, Mark's, I, I imagine that we're going to see more turnover 
That's great. People have 30 year, but they don't really live. Very few ultimately make it to a 30 year right. mortgage. Right. You have to move death. Right. More reason. kids, whatever. Uh, wow. That we're going to see them. What? It's kind of a downer. I mean, you know. Well, you have more kids. You get a better job. You move. Good things. All great things happen to you, and you need another mortgage. Right. And so you're going to have less. You're going to have less spending power if you're paying. You know. 400 basis points more, for yeah. sure. But but I would push back a little bit on the housing rally today. Like, I don't, I mean, the XHB moving 6% and, and going within 3% of all-time highs, really? I don't think so. I, I don't think the housing market has that kind of strength behind it. And I realize the components of the XHB, including things like like Home Depot and, and you know, housing companies, Williams-Sonoma, et cetera. Yeah. But, I mean, I, I ultimately do think that these are dynamics. I think the housing market is going to continue to weaken. I think the consumer will, at some point, um, not have the job they have today. And I, I think those are dynamics that aren't necessarily awful for the market in the near term. But but, but I get why there was so much pressure from rates on the housing market, but I, I would be fading that SHB move. It's housing in- moved as if mortgage rates were going down yeah, by integers. Come on. As opposed to, you know, percentage, yeah. uh, you know, fractions of a percent. Well, I'm still struck by this view, and a lot of the economists have it, that the market's rallying here because the Fed will be able to gradually bring rates down next year. Mm-hmm. When in history has the Fed been able to gradually bring rates down? I would be more comfortable saying the market's rallying because the Fed won't have to cut next year. I, I think predicated on this strength is that the economy hangs in there, yeah, like and we're going to have to use stuff like housing or consumer to make that judgment. Cool. All right. Well, meantime, the growth trade broadly outperforming value this year, but one of our traders is pointing out a divergence in how small and large cap growth stocks have fared. Let's go off the charts with Chris. What are you looking at? Well, I think this is really interesting because it's the exact opposite of what was playing out a year ago. So one year ago, if you go back to last fall, early last winter, you had a growth versus value actually making new lows. And it was making new lows among the large caps, but it wasn't making new lows among the small caps. The growth names in the small cap world began to turn up about a year ago. Fast forward to right now, it's the exact opposite. You have the large cap growth, as we know, as dominant as it's been over the last uh, number of months. Curiously, small cap growth really hasn't worked here. Small cap value has been pretty dominant over small cap growth the last three or four months. So I wonder kind of what that message is. Is is it the market hinting at us that maybe we should dig into these value stocks and try to find some areas that in any broadening of the market uh, where we want to play? So I think there's a couple names here probably worth talking about. Industrials have been a favorite uh, of ours. Parker Hannafin, I think, is a great example of something in the value index that has just been neglected all year. This is a stock at new absolute highs and new relative highs. Um, Very much a standout within industrials. PACAR, P-C-A-R, another example of that. And what we like about this one is the sell side hates it. There's like about 20 analysts who cover it. There's only five buys uh, on the name. Another stock that all year, despite the emphasis on growth, has exhibited leadership. And then lastly, if you want to stay with tech, Look at IBM. I mean, this thing is finally Ooh, come on. coming. Really? Is that what we got to do on a day like today? I got to go to IBM? I thought those were the down days where my glass was half empty. I mean, but this I is could. coming out of a 10-year range. Yeah. It, it reminds me of Microsoft, say, 10, 12 years ago, when no mm, one would even 32. consider Microsoft on the long side. Another name the analysts hate, 23 analysts covered, I think four or five buys. So look elsewhere if this thing is broadening out. Julie, you like any of these names? Yeah, I I like most of them, especially IBM. I think companies like IBM are the type that are actually going to benefit from AI in that they are a trusted resource in terms of guiding enterprise companies into how to to do this, right? And if you already have your exposure to to Google for 
your AI. I think this is also an interesting one. And I love that it's like when it's so hated, you know, typically it's, there's just no more sellers left, right? And it, they, those are the ones that can be a really nice opportunity. Karen, do you like either of these industrials, PACCAR or Parker Hannifin? Um, I don't know them so well, to be honest. I mean, okay. my, my industrial heart is with URI, um, and that's been a decent place to be. I do have a question, though, for either Julie or Chris. Um, when you say small caps, in your view, what is that, $10 billion? Is yeah. that, What is it? You know, it's funny. You'd answer that question very differently a handful of years ago. The small cap index has been brought up so much. I think you're dealing with somewhere in the 5 to 15 neighborhood, which sounds absurd relative to what we would have said 10 years ago. But I just think the reality of the indices put you kind of in that cap range. Yeah. Same for you, Julie. Yeah, absolutely right. It's, it's sort of there's a lot of dispersion where you have a lot of the micro caps. And then it's there's kind of this gap between, let's call it one and five, and then suddenly between five and 15, there's a lot more populace there. So it, it, it just really depends how you want to define it. But my clients certainly like to give me a hard time about it, that's for sure. <laughs> Coming up, a massive run for Meta. Shares have nearly tripled over the past year, but can the stock keep climbing the social ladder? We'll debate that next. Plus, building up gains, Home Depot shares surging after a big earnings beat, uh, even as home improvement sales level off. We'll hammer into why investors were so constructive on the name when Fast Money returns. Edward Jones, who knows that just like life, financial planning isn't only about long-term goals. It's about the moments big and small along the way. And when it comes to achieving everyday financial goals, Edward Jones works hard to connect you with someone you can trust professionally and personally. That's why they created their free financial advisor matching tool to help you find a financial advisor in your community. When you take the quiz and get your matches, don't expect just a list of resumes. You'll also see each financial advisor's story and personal interests. And when it's time to meet for the first time, they'll focus on your story, asking questions to understand where you're headed and why. Because Edward Jones knows that at the end of the day, behind every financial goal is a life goal. And that's what really matters. To learn more and find your financial advisor partner, take the quiz at match.edwardjones.com. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to Fast Money. Meta's mega moves, the social media giant, has been on a tear over the last year. At last November's lows, it was a sub-$90 stock. Now it is more than $336. It's nearly tripled in just over a year. The stock is now at its highest level since February of 2022. At what point does it get expensive? Um, I, it's more expensive for sure than it was, but right. I think that 89 is really, it's a red herring. It's, it never should have been there. It never should have been there. At that time, I think it was trading at maybe 11 or 12 times earnings. So, I mean, now it's in the low 20s, slightly above a market multiple, which it seems it should have above a market multiple. $25 billion of cash. It's a cash machine. I mean, there's a lot to still like about it. I thought that last quarter was really good. The overreaction to the earnings last quarter was kind of ridiculous, um, which, you know, we just think they were giving conservative guidance in the world that was in somewhat of uh, upheaval. So I still like it. I think all of the things, the pillars that brought it here are still there. Um, 
it's actually harder now. It's a much bigger position right. that I wrestle with. It's a tough, you know, it's a good yeah. problem to have. Problem. It is. Yeah, I was going to say. So often what I do is have that problem, sell upside calls, and then deal with a different problem. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I remember getting it from 90 to 120 and thought I had a good trade. And here we are uh, 200 bucks later uh, on the stock. This is a stock that's been above its 50-day moving average effectively every single day since, de- since December 23rd of last year. So I think if you're long and you're trying to protect the position, so long as you're above the 50-day, you stay long until the fact change. The dynamics around Meta that also allowed it to participate in the AI rally, I think, are real. I mean, I think of, of the, the, the mega cap tech companies that, that truly get the benefit of AI. It's, it's Facebook. And, you know, you talk about reels and you talk about some core businesses that get them straight into the consumer. Um, this is part of where they get past just being so tied to the ad revenue or at least those dynamics. So um, I'm long Meta. Uh, I think it goes higher. I, I think the valuation is still somewhat defensive. And there's no question you have people that are chasing this. And I think a lot of people are still underweight. All right. There's a lot more fast money to come. Here's what's coming up next. Home Depot, looking tough as nails after earnings. But it wasn't home improvement sales that had investors building their stakes. The tools of that trade, next. Plus, the U.S.-China relationship in focus on the eve of President Biden and Xi's highly anticipated meeting. What could come from that confab and how it could impact both economies? You're watching Fast Money, live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. We're back right after this. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Welcome back to Fast Money. Shares of Home Depot topping the tape after posting better than expected earnings this morning. The stock up nearly 5.5%, its best day in over a year. So the company saw a fourth straight quarter of comp store sales and narrowed its forecast for the year. So was it earning? Well, you know, I was on Squawk Box when the earnings crossed. Talked to analysts. They said, eh, you know, it was fine. It was yes. enough. Yes. And then we got the CPI print and it's off to the race. It was more than enough once yeah. that CPI print came out. It was fine. They narrowed the range. They had, you know, it was a little light on revenue. We knew that. Um, there was nothing that was really a surprise in there. They're a good operator. It's been a little bit of a tougher environment for sure. All that goes out the window when you have, oh, my God, it's a rally. We're going to have, you know, uh, mortgage rates come way down, and that will spur on the retail, the uh, real estate market. And obviously, Home Depot is a beneficiary of all that. That was the, the probably 12 of the 15 and a half points. Right. I think the first three and a half points were, okay, it was fine. We knew it wasn't going to be great. They did good well enough. Yeah, and Julie, of course, we're looking ahead to Target and Walmart, which will be even bigger reads. I mean, as important as Home Depot may be, um, Target and Walmart will will be even more so. Yeah, I think if you look at the categories that Home Depot is struggling in, it's clear that big ticket and discretionary is a real challenge for them. And I think the same story will be true for Target and Walmart. We know that Target's more discretionary mix is a real challenge for them. 
I think going forward, they are really trying to figure out how to get their assortment so that they still benefit from those higher margins, but they have a little bit more stability to, the, to their comp store sales. Walmart, on the other hand, is just executing at a much higher level, and I think they're better positioned, even if the economy is better than we think, I think they're still better positioned with their mix. What chart looks better, Chris? It's not even close. Uh, I'm with Julie on this one. I think the Walmart chart's fantastic. Look at Home Depot. It's a $300 stock. It was a $300 stock a year ago, the year before that, the year before that. I mean, this thing has been stuck for three years. It made four-year relative performance lows versus the S&P 24 hours ago. Focus on good trends. Home Depot's not one of them. Walmart is. Play there. How about uh, Lowe's versus Home Depot? So we love these these yeah, these right. these big pair trades, whether it's Target, Walmart, you know, Coke, Pepsi. These guys seem to be in the same class. Lowe's t- trades cheap to Home Depot for a reason. Yep. Again, the pro business has not been as good, but it's held serve for the last six months, and almost makes me feel like, based upon what you've also affirmed, that maybe it goes it outperforms. I'm not there, and I know we probably disagree on this. I actually like the home builders here instead of the home uh-huh. improvement names. Uh, the fact that you had oversold conditions in. D.R. Horton and Lennar three weeks ago, and the way they responded from that, I think that's the sign of a leader. And the home builders, whether it was rates up this year or rates down, they've acted like a leader. I want to stay there. By the way, I love the way Chris gets in my grill about my call. That was the nicest way someone has said, I don't really, I don't like your view at all on home builders. I think you're wrong. That was pretty, that was, well, that was What's, what's the answer to your own question? So um, I, I think that Lowe's has traded at a discount for a long time yeah. for a reason. Mm-hmm. Um, I think some of the benefits of Pro at Home Depot are, are things that, look, the margin actually held up. That was part of the good news today. Mm-hmm. Um, they talked about seeing some weakness in big ticket items. They talked about some things that I think should concern people. Maybe are the things that Chris is talking about there in the share price. Um, relative value, I, I'll take lows here. And do not miss an exclusive interview with the Home Depot CEO, Ted Decker. That is Monday, 1 p.m. Eastern time, right here on CNBC. Coming up, U.S.-China relations in focus. President Biden meeting with Xi Jinping for high-level talks tomorrow. What the two world leaders hope to accomplish and how it could impact relations between the two countries. And sticking with the international trade, the emerging markets catching our traders' eyes. The countries to keep an eye on when Fast Money returns. Missed a moment of fast? Catch us anytime on the go. Follow the Fast Money Podcast. We're back right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. A huge rally on Wall Street after this morning's soft inflation data. The Dow surging nearly 500 points. Now on a three-day winning streak, the S&P is up almost 2%. And the tech-heavy Nasdaq leading the gains up 2.4%. A number of stocks trading at or near all-time highs. Arista Networks, Chipotle, O'Reilly Auto, Pulte, and Walmart all hitting those levels during the session. And Jamie Dimon speaking in Mexico this evening, saying inflation may not go away that quickly, that the Fed is right to pause in rate hikes right now, but that they may have to do, quote, a little bit more. Meantime, the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation CEO Summit kicks off today in San Francisco. The summit coming at a time when American companies are struggling to define their relationship with China. And, of course, ahead of a rare meeting between President Biden and Chinese President Xi Jinping tomorrow. Eamon Javers has got the very latest on what companies are hoping to accomplish this week. Eamon. 
Hey there, Melissa. Well, President Biden arrived in San Francisco just about an hour ago, stepping off Air Force One and shaking hands with California Governor Gavin Newsom and other state officials here. We're expecting President Xi Jinping's Air China flight to land very shortly. We haven't seen that arrival yet. The question for corporate executives watching all of this is what, if anything, the leaders will be able to agree to? And the early betting is not much. Maybe some new language on climate change and some fresh communications around AI negotiations are potentially on the table. The two men won't actually see each other until tomorrow at a location that still hasn't officially been confirmed to the public, uh, but the city has been scrubbed and security zones have been erected in anticipation of their arrival. Visitors uh, to at least one local hotel were given free copies of the Beijing-based newspaper China Daily this morning with the optimistic headline, Efforts to Get Ties on Track Pay Dividends, and a picture of a smiling Xi looming over the Golden Gate Bridge. By contrast, in Washington today, Today, the U.S.-China Economic and Security Review Commission, traditionally skeptical of Beijing, put out its annual report, finding Beijing continues to reject cooperation with the United States on fundamental questions of national security, economics, or trade. The commission took a downbeat approach to the year's worth of diplomacy we've seen over the past uh, 12 months or so, saying none of the flurry of visits and other diplomacy over the past year have resulted in any significant change of course by the regime. The most likely deliverable is one that could avoid an economically destructive accidental confrontation between the two countries, that is, the resumption of those direct military-to-military -military communications. They were suspended back in 2022 when Nancy Pelosi went to Taiwan. That is seen as one of the most likely agreements that we could see between the two leaders tomorrow here, Melissa. Back over to you. All right. Eamon, thank you. Eamon Javers in San Francisco. For more on what could come out of the APEC summit and President Biden and Xi's meeting, let's bring in China Market Research Group Managing Director Sean Ryan. Sean, great to have you with us. It's great to be here, Melissa. It's a hopeful time in China that there could be a mini detente of sorts between Xi Jinping and Biden when they meet tomorrow. But the reality is I don't think there's going to be major great progress. I expect that China and the United States will announce some agreements on fentanyl crackdowns, on climate change. And I think that you're going to see Xi Jinping is going to want to launch a charm offensive to the American business community. He's bought record numbers of American soybeans last week, even though they're more expensive than Brazilian ones. I expect that maybe they're going to come to a letter of intent to buy more Boeing airplanes, which the Chinese haven't bought for six years in order to ice the Americans. But I think the main thing, Melissa, is the two countries are talking again. When the heads of the two countries are talking, that builds up confidence because confidence right. is really weak in China right now. And Sean, we are just uh, learning that President Xi has touched down in San Francisco just in, in the past few minutes. So uh, he is in country at this point. Um, when it comes to that charm offensive that you were talking about, Sean, what would be a win for President Xi when he meets with the leaders of various U.S. Companies like GM and, and Tesla and Citigroup, et cetera. I mean, is, is he after more foreign direct investment? And does he have to walk a tightrope, you know, in terms of courting these CEOs, wanting their investment, but not looking like he's desperate? Yeah, it's interesting. So last week, when you read the Chinese state media, they said, we're not sure that Xi Jinping is going to actually meet with President Biden. We want to make sure that the Americans are actually offering olive branches to the Chinese. But this week, the rhetoric in the Chinese media has totally changed, and they say that we're looking for good relations. So I think Xi Jinping has already shown the people of China that he is strong and he's not going to bow down to what the Chinese consider to be bullying by the Biden regime. 
Um, so I think he's going to try to court FDI. Um, I'm American, but I've been in China for about 27 years. This is the worst business confidence I've seen in the two and a half decades that I've been here. FDI dropped 8% this year so far. China right now, the economy is weak. It's very weak, and they need the GEs, the city groups. They need the American companies to keep investing in China. I expect the American companies will come in and start investing in 2024, which is why I think numbers, GDP growth numbers, will probably rise about five percent next year and outperform a lot of expectations. I'm hearing from a lot of multinationals from America that they want to come back to China. They're worried about the political risk, not so much from the Chinese side, but they're more worried from the Biden side. They're worried that the Americans are going to keep putting more sanctions. So hopefully with this meeting tomorrow, um, American companies will feel that they're given the go ahead by the Biden regime to invest in China again. Right. Uh, again, if you're just joining us, you're looking at a live picture there. San Francisco President Xi uh, of China has just touched down in, in San Francisco for the APEC summit. Sean, in terms of that business environment, though, how much it's all about risk reward. And for many, many years, uh, U.S. companies were willing to take the risk of the uncertainties of operating in China for the reward of booming growth. That promise of booming growth isn't necessarily there anymore. So how much of it is you know, diplomatic relations gone sour and how much of it is just the Chinese economy is languishing and the government there doesn't appear to want to throw it a lifeline? That, that's a great question, Melissa. I think that the economy is bad. It's really bad right now, but it's not as bad as people think, which is why the government isn't launching a stimulus. I've actually advised against launching a stimulus because you, you don't want to get too much indebted in China like the United States has. And frankly, local governments have run out of money because they spent so much money in 2022 um, on zero COVID implementation. You know, I'm sitting in my closet right now in my house in Shanghai. I was locked down here for three months in 2022 during the Shanghai lockdown. So local governments have run out of money. That's why they're not launching a stimulus. But I think at the end of the day, China is still the world's largest retail market. You're seeing numbers from Lululemon, Starbucks, Nike that are posting records. So there's still a lot of profits to be made. But American companies need to be cautious. It's not the no brainer investment like it has been for the previous 20 years. So if you're in technology, if you're a company like Intel, if you're a company like Qualcomm, uh, it's probably going to be risky to invest in China right now because of the geopolitical tension. But if you're a company in F&B, if you're a company in cosmetics like an SD Lauder, then China is still the great market to be investing in. And that's where investors should be looking for the great consumer plays. Chinese consumers are nervous. They're cutting back on their spending. They're trading down. You know, they're buying luck and coffee. They're buying products on the cheap on Pinduoduo, which is like a super cheap version of an Amazon. And they're shopping and going down. But they are. And let's remember, they're sitting on 2.4 trillion of household savings. So once the Chinese consumer feels confident again, they're going to start to spend. And I think that'll happen in 2024, uh, middle of next year. Sean, great to speak with you. Thanks so much. Sean Ryan broadcasting from his closet in Shanghai. <laughs> Although it's a very nice closet. I mean, it's much nicer Beautiful. than any of my, my, my closet. Like Mine would be very messy. Um, in terms of, you know, the types of industries, the types of sectors 
where China is still attractive. Do you agree with Sean? Well, I, I do. And I do think that uh, luxury still continues to work. Um, he also in his notes talked about L'Oreal. I think you look at Diageo, you look at the spirits industries, you look at LVMH. Um, I, I also think that if you didn't have some of the geopolitics, and that's a big if, but, but the, the slowdown in the Chinese economy and the cyclicality of it, which I think is some is structural, some is cyclical, I think is therefore overdone. You can't tell me Lulu doesn't want to grow in China and can't still grow. You can't tell me uh, Starbucks is going to reverse field uh, on those those capex and investment plans. So um, I just think even a slower Chinese economy, that's not the deterrent to American corporations. It's the geopolitics. There was an interesting article today about uh, one trillion yuan. Um, I don't know what it's stimulus, I guess it was. Mm-hmm. And I mean, Sean made it sound like that. That's absolutely not happening off the table. I, because I'd really love to get that Chinese traveler back. So much of like an Estee Lauder or a Louis Vuitton or any of those is the traveler as well, as a luxury buyer. Coming up, the end of one big bearish bet leads to another. Market contrarian Michael Burry officially closing his position against the S&P 500. But there is one part of the market he thinks is due for some big losses. We'll tell you where next. Plus, today's rally is going global. We'll samba our way down to an emerging opportunity abroad. Yes, that's a hint. More Fast Money in two. Welcome back to Fast Money. U.S. markets weren't the only ones to rally today. The emerging market ETF popping nearly 3%, its best day since January. The Brazil and Mexico ETF seeing even bigger gains. Uh, Tim, on our afternoon conference call, you flagged these moves. I, it, it, some of it goes back to the dollar. Some of it goes back to really relief on rates is a great thing globally. And if you look at the dollar's weakness over the summer of 22, you can actually see that was when you saw uh, whether it was emerging or whether it was even the, the EM, the Euro stocks 50 start to outperform. I'm the research ad, uh, advisor on an international ETF strategy at, that's dividend oriented. And we've got Petrobras as the biggest weighting in the portfolio. So, uh, you know, it's a case where I think you've got... Uh, a dynamic in Brazil and Mexico that's particularly well-suited to lower rates and better currencies, you also have uh, some of this just near-shoring dynamics. And, and we talk all the time. We just got done talking about China. You know, I think you have a case where that's actually um, really helpful to investing in Brazil and Mexico right now. Yeah, that was your thesis for Mexico, near-shoring. Yes, um, right, near-shoring. That's definitely part of it. And um, there's sort of a Slow industrialish revolution going on in Mexico. They have a really young workforce. The average age there is 28 or so. The only negative that would be a lot higher if AMLO had not done that Grupo Pacifico Aeroport or all the airport tariff, that seemingly random arbitrary thing. That's not a great thing, but um, I like it. I like the dynamics. Uh, We got some breaking news here out of Washington, D.C. The House wrapping up its vote on a short-term spending bill to avoid a shutdown. Emily Wilkins got the details. Emily. uh, It looks like the House is going to just be passing, really, in just a number of seconds here, probably. The bill that would keep the government funded past this Friday's deadline, it would fund the government, at least part of it, until next year, uh, January 19th for one part, February 2nd for the other. And this is really a bipartisan effort. You saw a lot of Democrats come and support this bill. At the same point, you had a number of Republicans say they couldn't back it because there weren't conservative priorities in it. Now, that could be a concern down the road for 
Speaker Mike Johnson. But at this point, Republicans who I've talked to say that they still trust Johnson. They understand that he was in a tight position. But of course, this makes the next funding battle more difficult and it sets up the next funding battle for just a few months from now. The Senate does still need to pass this bill for it to be finalized. But Senator Chuck Schumer said that he and Senator Mitch McConnell would be working to bring it up in the Senate quickly. And they believe that they can do so before the deadline of Friday night. All right, Emily, thank you. Emily Wilkins with the update there. No shutdown on Friday. Julie, is this the kind of thing you think where the markets don't do anything and they would have only done something if we shut down? I mean, our country has the worst ADD I've ever seen in my <laughs> life. We are incapable of just getting it over the finish line. I, look, I think we always kind of factor in this kind of dysfunction and, you know, some investors actually prefer it because then there's no regulation that gets passed that could impact business. But overall, I don't think it helps our standing in the world that we have this level of chaos and dysfunction. I'm thrilled something's getting done and that Democrats are at least there's a bipartisan effort. But yikes, this country. Coming up, a new big short. Hedge fund manager Michael Burry of the big short fame making a new bet against one red hot area of the market. The group he is playing for a drop. Next, more Fast Money in two. Welcome back to Fast Money. Big short investor Michael Burry betting one area of this market has come too far too fast. According to a securities filing, Burry's firm, Cyan Asset Management, opened a bearish options trade against the iShares Semiconductor ETF, which is up more than 46% this year. The exact value of the position is unknown, but the notional value of the stock shares involved was more than $47 million at the end of the quarter. Burry also closing out his previous put positions against the S&P and Nasdaq as both indices closed out the third quarter lower. Let's assume that he's still in this position. Chris, what do you think? I think, number one, we have to at least entertain the idea this is a hedge against a long in the group. So let's not discount that uh, entirely. I think, second, when you look at the semis, this is a really bifurcated group. For as good as uh, NVIDIA has been, for as good as uh, AVGO has been, LAM Research, KLA Tencore, there's, there's also Texas, Qualcomm, and OnSemi, which look awful. So it's hard to make a bet on semis. I think you can buy some here, but also a half the group is still in a downtrend. Right. What is your hedge for NVIDIA? Uh, with some, uh, what we're more out of the money calls that are getting closer to the money calls. Um, and I might put on some more before uh, the 21st, 4th, I think is earnings. 21st, I think. First, uh, the Somewhere week is the there, yeah. Yes. You know what's amazing is, is I'm long Intel and I'm not, uh, but it's, it's up 44% year to date. And this, is, this, this stock is the one all we talk about is how they're not executing. Right. Um, that move in the SMH talked about all-time highs or the semiconductor or the SOX index, whatever you're tracking, it's 18% in 10 days. I mean, certainly I, I agree that it is overcooked here, um, but that leadership hasn't given out. And really since October 14, 2022, that CPI low, when we had the record CPI, I think it's up over 60%. Wow. Up next, final trades. Do not miss former U.S. Ambassador to the U.N. Nikki Haley on Squawk Box. That's tomorrow, 7.30 a.m. Eastern Time, right here on CNBC. Time for the final trade. Let's go around the horn. Julie Beal. Uh, if you want exposure to health care, but you're nervous about everything that's kind of GLP-oriented, Zenta's a nice play. It's more in the genetics field, and they finally reported a great quarter. Chris Verone. Some value tech, IBM, up through 150 is a big break out there. Tim Seymour. 
Nice having you, Chris. Uh, Brazil's new back. We talked about Brazil. This is a mega growth name, fintech name, and you just had numbers today. Good numbers. Karen? Yes, yeah, so normally I don't love to buy things that are up. However, the IWM coming off a multi-year low to take out the pandemic, so I like it right, right here. All right, thank you for watching Fast Money. I'll see you tomorrow on Squawk Box as well. Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. All opinions expressed by the Fast Money participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by them on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed on this podcast as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of an opinion. Such opinions are based upon information the Fast Money participants consider reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warrant its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Fast Money Disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Fast Money Disclaimer. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.